0: You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 17, today we're in Péragude.
1: Well, Francois, Jumbo-Visma are down to six, Team UAE Emirates are down to four, and the cycling podcast is down to two. Just you and I here for the final week. We might have the odd uh, guest voice joining us over the last few days of the tour. But where are we?
2: Well, we're in uh, in Saint Savin, facing Otacam. Actually, tomorrow's. Uh final yeah final mountain of the of the Tour de France maybe the decisive one who knows I mean it doesn't look very threatening from here even if there are a few clouds hanging over it
1: do they have to go up to that very pointy bit there or does the road <laughs> stop no, a bit no. short of that
2: no it's it's, it's short of that and it goes but it down the down the, the bottom there so yeah it's not exactly what what we see is not exactly what what they're going to climb tomorrow but yeah lo- lots of questions hanging around the Otacam and the last stage will you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> just a small interruption. What somebody's parked right next to us. We are right next to the road here on this little square, aren't we? Yes, yeah.
2: so, and we, we're in the little square in Saint Savin. As uh, as I said, you know the the, the new brasserie, Le Bistro de l'Abbaye, uh, founded by the the, the Vic- uh, you know the, the the Saint Martin family, who've been running Le Viscos, as you know, one of our favorite places in the Pyrenees, and um, yeah, the, you know, facing really to, tomorrow is the last for the final mountain the final stage from what we saw today we we you know we wondering whether you know the, the the tour de france can be you know topple overturned changed what, what you know what from what we we saw on the, in the stage today there were maybe glimpses of you know chances of as you said team memories and um, has down to you know four uh, but what what the microburgs saw today in the stage and what brandon McNulty. Showed in the race today. oddly enough the uh, uh, UAE Emirates were the, the the best team today, which happens in football. You know sometimes when you have a ten man team, they, they play better than when they had the had the, 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 the full the, the full squad in action on the pitch. So that it was a little bit the the script today, especially I, I must say Brandon McNulty. We all know what a gifted rider is, and you know what the talent he has and the, the potential he has. But in the, in the last couple of years, we, we also uh, so in very, very often uh, not be, you know, not be up to his uh, potential and reputation. I even heard from a source, an American source, you know, when I once named that he sometimes, he was sometimes named, you know, jokedly, jokingly by some Americans, Brandon McForty. So there you are today, no fault, no flaw. He, he wrote a, an extraordinary stage, great performance. But will teams matter tomorrow when we uh, when when they tackle the last uh, mountain stage? I mean, it was a man-to-man uh, fight today, and uh, I guess it's going to be another man-to-man fight
1: tomorrow. Well, it will be the showdown, won't it, between Jonas Vingegaard in the yellow jersey and Tadej Pogacar. The- two-time defending champion he's won the last two years of course uh, always stands repeating that he is uh, the man to be toppled he's wearing the white jersey of course and today we learned that those two riders are the best two riders in the race uh, no doubt about that whatsoever and there's very little to split them really when push comes to shove when uh, Pogacar accelerated Vingegaard was his equal uh, not just on the final climb and the the, the run to the line uh, where Pogacar just about got the edge but when Pogacar tried to go a bit earlier on the the penultimate climb right at the top Vingagor was alert and strong enough to stay with him it was an extraordinary battle on that final climb because we were waiting 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 all the way up the Perisord and all the way on the steeper section the last sort of kilometer and a half to Peregud when is Tade Pogacar going to Pop out of the slipstream of uh, Brandon McNulty and uh, try to press home some sort of advantage. I mean, he did win the stage. It was a real to and fro at the end, wasn't it? Because there was that f- a fascinating moment where Vingagore actually went into the middle between the two UAE riders and uh, looked like he was trying to, I don't know, perhaps infiltrate, um, put Pogachar off a bit. But uh, Pogachar had the sprint, he won the stage. He took the time bonus. Obviously, Vingegaard got the second time bonus, so the time difference, only four seconds. And when you consider that UAE Team Emirates lost Rafael Micah this morning and are down to just four riders, all the more extraordinary how they managed to kind of corral those few resources that they have left into a really cohesive plan that covered the team all day. Uh, Micah a non-starter, because yesterday he snapped his chain in that really... Uh, well, I say freak incident. I mean, chains do snap when under... T- under pressure, but he's torn a muscle as well, so a non-starter this morning, Micah, but it meant that the UAE Team Emirates riders uh, well, they redeployed their resources, Mikel Bier rode very, very hard on the Orquette dans and then the beginning of the Valleron climb, before McNulty took over and, well, McNulty's turn absolutely shredded the general classification group, didn't it, until it was just Pogachar and Vingegaard left. Everybody else was, was dropped. We stood at the bottom of the Col d'Espagne this afternoon, as you'll hear a little bit later, and when they came past us, basically there'd been many... A- attempts to get away but nothing had got off the front but just going into the bottom of the climb we saw guillaume bovin another canadian riding for israel premier tech and owen dole of ef education easy post just off the front as they came past us and then I suppose the first serious move on the Aspan was Thibault Pino of Groupama FDJ and Alexey Luksenko of Astana. Uh, Simon Geschke, the King of the Mountains leader, was also able to get away and he scored a few points for being third over the top of the Aspen behind those two. Roman Bardet was also up the road trying to recover yesterday's losses. And then, well, the big names started to get dropped. Adam Yates of Ineos Grenadiers was probably first to go. And although he did get back on, he was quick, quickly dropped again when the pace Uh, Went back on on the Val-Laurent climb. But as I say, McNulty really was man of the match. To to use your footballing analogy there, Francois. I, I have
2: another football analogy. I thought when when with, with the losses in every team, it's like a penalty shootout. You know, there's one man one man down, and then you left with the other the last two. You know, to <laughs> score the winner.
1: <laughs> well, possibly, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not sure that's quite how a penalty shootout works because if everyone scores, they just go round again. <laughs> but I suppose in a way, that's that cycling as well. Um, last man standing from the break was Andreas Lesnikund of DSM, uh, he was then caught by the McNulty Express. I suppose the surprise was that Sep Cus was dropped pretty early, leaving Vingegaard without any teammates. As I say, right near the top of that penultimate climb, Pogachar did, acha- did attack, but he couldn't shake off Vingegaard. And then, extraordinarily, McNulty carried on with the pace setting once he got back on and rode the front all the way up that final climb. Uh, he did say in his press conference afterwards that he, uh, or he maybe said to some media afterwards, um, that he wondered if he might be allowed to win the stage by the other two, but no gifts uh, in the Pyrenees, uh, no gifts anywhere in the Tour de France. So there we are, Pogacar wins another stage of the Tour. Vingegaard holds on to that yellow jersey, looking good with one big mountain stage to go. McNulty, who was third, 32 seconds later, were a long way clear of the rest because then was Geraint Thomas in fourth, two minutes and seven down, then Lutsenko and Bardet, and then the gaps really started to open up. So what's that done overall? Well, the top two, the gap is down to 2 minutes and 18 seconds. Thomas is now 4 minutes 56 back. Quintana and Godou are still fourth and fifth Roman Bardet rises back up to sixth and uh, well Enric Mass is also back into the top ten there was also one of the sprint finishes of this or any Tour de France by Fabio Jakobsen a stage winner for Quick-Step back in Denmark of course he sprinted up the final climb to Peragood cheered on by Soigneurs from the team and by his teammates Florian Seneschal and Yves Lampard hovering just in front of the broom wagon all the way up the climb and he crossed the line with just 17 seconds to spare before the time cut would have eliminated him so Jakobsen lives to fight another day and who knows could sprint to a stage victory on the Champs-Élysées now he has survived in the Tour
0: the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by SuperSapien, Energy Management for Committed Athletes and Coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
1: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens for sponsoring the cycling podcast. Our title sponsors, of course, and they have started their own podcast, the Super Sapiens podcast, hosted by Zylon Van Eyck and Dr. David Lippmann. And the latest guest is the Head of Applied Science at SuperSapiens, Dr. Howard Zisser. It's a really fascinating interview, actually, get delving into the science behind the SuperSapiens technology, but in an understandable way. And, uh, well, in this clip, Dr. Howard Zisser talks a little bit about um, monitoring glucose levels and the differences between diabetics and non-diabetics.
3: People without diabetes shouldn't be able to drive their glucose level that low or they get into the same level of trouble. Because we have a counter-regulatory hormone called glucagon. So if my body, it's kind of interesting, there's this thing called cephalic phase secretion of insulin, which sounds very fancy. But what time is it? It's, you know, 740 in the morning here in California. If I start smelling breakfast in the other room, my brain's gonna say, Hey, you're gonna eat breakfast pretty soon. My pancreas is going to say, here's a little squirt of insulin to kind of, we'll get a little head start, which is great because that'll prevent my glucose from going up too high. But say I skip breakfast. Well, my blood sugar won't go too low because one, the insulin that I have will get excreted by my kidneys pretty quickly. And number two, I have glucagon, which is like the opposite hormone of insulin that will release uh, sugar from my liver and balance things out without me
1: to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com.
3: Well, Francois, what were you thinking as that trio
1: of riders, the two UAE Team Emirates riders and Jonas Vingegaard in the yellow jersey, were just stretching away from everybody else on the final climb... Were you like me, waiting for Pogachar to make the move and wondering why it wasn't coming yet?
2: Yeah, because I mean, what w- what you expect when when a team is leading like like you know UAE Emirates were today is kind of a launch pad, you know, for an attack. And yet the, the attack didn't come. But what what came was actually that you know it trimmed down the the, the, the GC group to well to the, the the basics, which were actually the man-to-man. Uh, fight we were expecting. It was not disappointing at all because in the end, you know, everybody was out of contention. It it, it was, you know, the scene was set for, for a really great finale on that, you know, the final ramp where uh, Romain Bardet won a stage uh, back in 2016, was it?
1: Might have been 17, I think.
2: 17, yeah. Well, so we know the ramp because I... <laughs> Remember, at the time where the pressure was at the top of it, where to walk up it, and I can tell you, uh, if, even walking that, that that little you know final uh, climb was was pretty uh, you know exhausting. So I mean, it, it's really hard, and uh, so yeah, it, it was like a, a, a final, like, like like you know the the, the stadium bit in a marathon, uh, where the, you know two riders, uh, two runners are left to battle it out for Olympic glory. What, that's what it was about it. And once again, it was 400 meters. It was really, really an exciting sprint finish between two guys, but really fighting it out. And as you said, Pogatra probably on this sort of effort, Pogatra is a little bit better than uh, uh, Vingegaard. Or almost had the impression, but I don't know. I don't know if it's if that's the case because, as you say, it's the Tour de France, uh, no gifts. But I almost had the impression that Vingegaard is so focused on. The Keeping the yellow you know, jersey and winning the Tour de France, that you know, he didn't put on that extra uh, little you know kick and jump that would have you know allowed him to win the stage. Maybe it was kind of a repeat of La Planche des Belles but uh, you know, two, well, two weeks later, and uh, obviously with, with with the same guys but not the same jerseys on. Yeah, an, an exciting moment, but also maybe a, a maybe a kind of admission a of defeat by uh, you know Pogachar. Then. Well, if you if we look at the figures, because uh, you know, once again, I I, I get the, those stats from uh, from from this guy, you know, sending me lots of stats stuff, stuff about the Tour de France. It, it was obviously the third stage win for Pogacar on this Tour de France, and so he's he's won at least uh, three stages in his uh, in his last uh, four Grand Tours, and which is something that apparently only Giuseppe Saroni did on, on the in the Giro. Back in the day, so to win three stages in four consecutive in his first four consecutive uh, Grand
1: Tours, I don't know if it's clear. Wow! Yeah. It's, so the one being the Welter when he yeah. first broke through as a Grand Tour rider, and then the last three editions of Absolutely. the Tour de France.
2: And wow. on, only Saroni, who is now actually, uh, you know, in uh, <laughs> leading uh, UAE Emirates, is is the is one one of the managers. Is is the only uh, guy who done it on the Giro from 1978 until up to 1980, I think.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, Pogacar, as I say, the hesitation, it's difficult to read too much into that. You know, was it because he didn't have any more? Was it because he's thinking about tomorrow as well? Um, uh, you know, his team is, is weak in numbers, but still very strong, not just in uh, the sense of what his teammates managed to do, McNulty in particular, um, but strategically, they they played a smart game today. I mean, they didn't have to... Perhaps do that today? Did they? But they did lay it down. They really took it on, and they tried to put Jumbo visma under pressure, and it worked because Vingegaard was isolated. Sepkus blew a lot earlier than I would have anticipated Sepkus blowing, especially when you see him look so good one day and then uh, empty of gas the next.
2: Yeah, uh, th- th- there was a kind of Americano American, uh, you know, v- uh, battle, uh, you know, there between uh, Kus and uh, McNulty, which was won by McNulty, but. Let, let's face it. We hadn't seen much of Brandon McNulty yet in the tour. Maybe he was put in reserve for the Pyrenees. Like uh, I, I, I thought, that was okay with Sepp We didn't we didn't didn't see him at all almost for the first two weeks. And all of a sudden, he was instrumental in Labduez Duez to um, to to lead the, the, the pace for well for all the GC contenders and 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 obviously, uh, moreover for uh you know as finger guard and but i was thinking at time isn't it a little bit too early to to use uh seb kuss you know they had uh, other uh trumps uh and other cards to play at that stage and and maybe all the effort done in the alps and then you know in the stage to four as well may, may, maybe you know he, he used up his, his batteries a little bit before he thought he would and uh, so if, if there's a glimpse of hope for pogacar is that well actually jumbo visma Today looked looked at well at least as weak as uh, his own team, and so maybe there will be a, a chance, a slim chance to attack today, if uh, Jonas Vingegaard is again isolated. And um, well, well, we we hope, we hope we we don't hope for Jonas Vingegaard to lose or for Tadej Pogačar to to win. The thing is, we like excitement, we like uncertainty. We we, we would love the the, the final time trial in Rocamadour. To, to to be you know as close as possible to to really crown be the you know to crown the, the 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 Tour de France winner in 2022, and this requires a little bit you know a narrower gap between the two. So yeah, we, we, we're in a way as you know lovers of the lovers of the sport, we would well we'd probably love for Pogacar to gain a little bit of time. It's it's feasible. We'll see tomorrow. But I. I also have the impression that Hugo Wiesma after today will probably clean up their act a little bit and, 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 and be a little bit tighter in the defence of the yellow jersey. But when, as, I mean, I'm risking a 20-point penalty here, but uh, as they say, when you don't have the legs, you don't have the legs. Well, that is true. <laughs> that is
1: very true, Francois. I do wonder whether UAE team Emirates might look at the GC tonight and feel fairly satisfied in that they have really simplified matters, haven't they? They have, Eliminated Geraint Thomas's kind of slim chance of still being in in play for the win because it could never really rule him out until he was ruled out. I mean, now nearly five minutes back as opposed to two minutes forty-three. Another very fine time trialist, of course. You know, they they may well look at it and go, "Well, we now know what we're dealing with, and we're dealing only with um, the battle now between pogachar and Vingegaard." The the other kind of um, storylines are of secondary importance to them they don't have to now worry about whether or not um try are to 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 plant something from a long way out because I, that would be a real real long shot uh, and, and, and basically won't happen so they they might be sat looking at the gc this evening thinking that they've um they have at least eliminated everybody else from the fight
2: that's right well to keep up with the the football uh you know uh metaphors. I, I know that lots of our listeners hate that, but I, so let's go for it. <laughs> but I mean, we, we're, we're now left with the, well, we're now left with the two finalists, you know, the, the World Cup final is there, we know who the two finalists are, and I, I, I'm afraid Garen Thomas and whoever, Naro Quintana and David will, but will be, you know, in the third place final, which nobody watches. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, oh, but the big question is, uh, what can Pogachar do tomorrow to try to crack Pingagor? I mean, the obvious one with those the three mountains. We were talking a bit about this, about the difference between the Alps and the Pyrenees. There's no valley to kind of deaden anything in between the three big climbs tomorrow. That's one thing that is perhaps in Pogacar's favour and might um, persuade them to try something from further out. But it's going to be a tall order. And then it comes down to the mathematics of how much time would they have to gain in order for Pogacar to have a live shot at the yellow jersey on Saturday?
2: Maybe uh, we, we've seen that when when in trouble, Yubo Vismar really get in trouble every time. Remember uh, the combo stage. Remember Vingegaard crash and changes change, changes of bikes. I mean, they they can't they can't can be in a panic if uh, things go wrong. The, the the guy who seems to me to be holding it together, uh, who, who holds the keys. Uh, because I mean, if if Porsche wants to take some time off, he must do it, you know, reasonably early in the stage. And 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 the rider who's been holding the keys to the first, let's say, hundred Ks in every mountain stage has been Wout van Aert because he always, you know, goes in the front, either is in the break or he comes back to help. The well, then you know, he, he leaves the, the 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 stage open for for the GC contenders. But I mean, he's been really uh, really instrumental in in. in in every stage since the start in denmark uh, you know for managing the, the 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 early half of of the stages for and making making them comfortable for one vanout if tomorrow one vanout for reason or another is not uh, for once is you know not that it is best or that, that 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 might be the key but i you know we we really don't see that happen do we i mean we uh, we see Vondra has been so impressive every day that, um, if he manages to 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 hold the, the bunch together on the on the first couple of climbs, it'll be it'll be very very tricky for Pogacar to try something from from afar.
1: It will. And without wanting to be unkind about Primoz Roglic, Vingagor doesn't have that same kind of air of vulnerability, really. I mean, he looks so sharp on the climbs. He reacts immediately. As soon as Pogachar makes a move, Vingagor is on the pedals, out of the saddle, reacting really, really quickly. and And, you know... <laughs> I know there's a time bonus on the line today, and the and and the um, uh, the stage win on the line today. Uh, but the fact that there was no time gap at all, you know, he was he crossed the line as close as he could be to Pogacar, and uh, you know he's he's not really giving a lot of encouragement that he's going to suddenly falter. Um, the other thing about the time trial is that if you look back to last year's Tour de France, I mean, we're dealing with a different Jonas Vingegaard now, aren't we? Because then he was a relatively unknown rider, a surprise, but he was third in the stage five time trial to Laval, just 27 seconds behind Pogachar, and that was a day when we all were almost demoralised by how strong Pogachar was in the time trial, um, because he, you know, was was putting the kind of the, the yellow jersey on a shelf. Less than a week into the race last year, but Vingegaard was third, uh, so it doesn't feel like he's quite as vulnerable as Roglic was in 2020. Um, you know, he's holding it together, even if there are cracks in the team. Maybe Vingegaard himself does look strong.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once again, you know, <laughs> I'm still looking at Hotakam You know, but but saying that, but yeah, probably the the last the last chance for for lies in in in. or stands up uh, in in that climb and uh, it it would take an extraordinary I mean it it is extraordinary we know that Pogacar is what he's capable of but I mean he hasn't shown he's been brilliant I mean three stage wins always always there but he he doesn't seem to have that extra gear that he had the other years or if he has it Jonas Wiener has it too so
1: yeah, and also the time gap, is it's just that little bit too big, isn't it? If it was a minute and ten, you know, that would be crackable. Uh, and the doubt would be in Vingagor's mind. But actually, he's got a minute to play with before it starts getting dangerous. And I think psychologically, that means that Vingagor, if he does have a moment of doubt, doesn't necessarily need to panic if he doesn't feel he has um, the legs to respond. And I think probably, that looking at the, the, the psychology of it, the fact that Vingagor has not cracked... And has reacted so promptly to Pogachar, probably will have got inside Pogachar's head. And, and I don't know, maybe it will prompt them, tempt them to try something spectacular tomorrow. Francois, as we said earlier, we went and saw the Tour de France pass by our very eyes at the bottom of the Col d'Espagne at lunchtime. So uh, this is us on the roadside. Where are we, Francois? We're in
2: Arrow. 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 Yeah, arrow, arrow. I mean, we're, we're always looking for arrows on, on the Tour de France, you know, signaling the way where we have to go. But this is A R R E A U, arrow. Uh, nothing to do with Harrow. But yeah, no, it's 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 a famous little village in uh, because it's really at the crossroads of most of the valleys where the Tour de France comes from. So almost every year we, we, we have to end up some one way or another to to drive through uh, Arrow, not far from Arrow it's it's a very very nice little village with this uh, it's its own river that bears its name le Gave le which is you know flowing down the the village and and actually by the side of it we are standing right now
1: uh. wow we're right at the base of the col d'Aspan, the first big pyrenean climb of the tour de france the riders are not that far away maybe 20 minutes away from here As things stand, the Peloton is all still together, lots of attacks so far, but nothing has got away. Maybe something will go clear on the Col d'Aspin. But we had a lovely lunch in Arrow, didn't we? We had boudin de porc noir, Um, basically black pudding, really. Black pudding with some baked apple and some fried onions and some salad and some chips.
2: Yeah, I, I we well, were lucky that uh, this was on the menu because you remember a couple of years back uh, there was a finished stage in Peragud and uh, somebody stole your black pudding from your plate at the press buffet. I can't remember who it was, but you know, I, f- I still feel guilty to the, to to the, to this day. So so we kind of made made amends by having, all having black pudding. To today it was yeah, it was cool. I mean, it's the the port noir, de bigois is is a. Is a variety of breed of, uh, of pigs that you know live uh, in the area in, in the area that, like the name implies they are black uh, very very tasty uh, obviously and uh, yeah tonight we'll be seeing that Viscos, one of our favorite place uh, places on the tour and they also you know cook Port Noir de Bigorre, which is one of, of, one of the breeds that almost disappeared, you know, the, I'm sure you have the same in Britain and all over the world, I mean, it was a, uh, it was a breed that all, got almost extinct until, uh, you know, some breeders, you know, got together and said, and, and thought, well, you know, this is real, real good stuff, we don't want this to be lost, and, and we, we revived the breed, and that's what it did.
1: So it's not wild boar. They're actually farmed, are they?
2: No, that, yeah, actually, no. It's not wild boar. I, I mean, obviously, sometimes, as you know, when when you release pigs in the in, in nature, they they turn back to. Uh, and apparently, I read recently, I don't know if it's true, that if you take a a, a, a normal a farm pig, you know, living in, how could I say? Uh, in custody almost, you know, with, with the humans, if you release them in, uh, in, in, uh, in the wilderness, they, they, they grow hair again and, and, and uh, you know, change colors. So yeah, so the, the Port Mare Bigor is naturally probably closer to a wild boar than uh, a normal pig. But I mean, well, the only thing we know about uh, really uh, Lionel is the, the taste. And it was really, really uh, yeah, an excellent little lunch.
1: So, well, we might be on for a double black pudding today then. That's uh, quite a, quite, it's like a sort of five mountain stage that if Le Viscos are serving us with black pudding. or I think one time I went there, we, we had the um, the pork de Bigor, just a, a little, um, well, quite a substantial slab of, of uh, pork. Delicious, very succulent. Um, lots to look forward to at Le Viscos, but more about that later. Tell me about Le Cagot in arrow
2: yeah it's uh, i mean that's that's a fascinating uh, story i've i've been looking into since i've been doing the tourist guide for uh, for the tour de france for uh, the organizers aso and you can find the stuff on on the internet and to to, to speak the truth sometimes on rival podcasts or on uh, tv channels you hear guys you know telling the story of the little castles and abbeys and everything i i shouldn't say that but more often than not, you know, this is these are stories I've written for the, the the official website, and you can find them for yourself uh, going in, into the le .fr uh, website. And I discovered the story of les Cagots. and th- th- there 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 is a museum here in Aron called the Musée des Cagots and the Cago were. Uh, it's difficult to say. They were like untouchables, like parias in, 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 you know, in, in sectors of, for instance, Indian society. They were outcasts. They were guys, they were you know, from father to son, and it went on for, for many, many centuries. They were they were outcasts. They, 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 they had their own little space in church. They couldn't live in the same. You know, they lived outside of, of town for no other reason than they were Cago. And uh, in the 17th, 18th century, lawyers and you know writers took stand. You know, stood with these guys, saying, you know, it's, I mean, this shouldn't happen in France. But it took a lot of time for the local population to to get rid of the uh, kind of. Uh, uh, you know, the the yeah the stigma stigma th- okay. and the stigma they had against against these these, these families and so well oh, of course well hopefully there are no cargos anymore but I mean they, 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 this went on from medieval times t- times t- until yeah the late 18th century so it was a long time when in, in, in d- deep in France you know in, you, you you had these these outcasts living outside of society.
1: Well, the fans are getting excited. I think the race is going to be here very shortly. So let's go a little bit up the climb and uh, see the Tour de France hit the bottom of the Col (laughs) d'Aspin. Francois, I had the feeling you were very comfortable this afternoon. You were really in your element at home feeling relaxed well Why?
2: because arrow as you m- might know or don't know is actually the capital of the valley the nest and uh, there's a castle there the famous castle known as the chateau de nest so as having spent the, the 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 past three weeks in the nest obviously you know that it was like it felt like home to me that's what i wanted to say
1: <laughs> well how are we doing here at, L- at leviscos um just tell me again why uh, this place means so much to you I mean I'm not going to do the Michelin guide for last night's hotel because we were in a fairly basic place on the outskirts of Foix weren't we um, but Le Viscos and especially the restaurant is another level isn't it
2: mm. I probably told the story before in other pod- in in episodes of post- t- uh, podcast on the tour but for those of you who don't know yet I mean we actually found the, the uh, Le Viscos by chance one day we were, we were going down the Tourmalet after Tour de France stage it was it was running late, and we were we had the impression we might end up, you know, getting to our hotel without eating. And at the time, we had, I had a good friend named Thierry Cazeneuve, who was the director of the Critérium du Dauphiné Libéré, the, the famous Dauphiné Libéré race. And uh, he um, he was there in the car with Charlie Motte as his driver. Charlie Motte, was a uh, you know, 1980s, 1990s uh, rider, finished twice fourth in the in the Tour de France, and it was for a long time the world number one. And and they actually, you know, they were ahead of us. And they sent us, they called us on, on the phone to say, it was 2001, they called us on the phone to say, we, I think we found a restaurant. Uh, so when you go down from Tourmalet, look for saint Savin, and um, it's a place called Le Viscos, and uh, the the landlord looks great. He has a nice collection of jeans, so it's promising, it's, prom- it's probably good. So we stopped there at a... a great 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 dinner uh you know reasonably cheap at the time with a nice little bottle of Béarn, and um, and we had that famous apple that you t- you, you tested um like the first time you came it's an apple with foie gras and and black pudding inside and it's cooked uh in the oven like this and it was just marvelous so every time we were in the area we, we came back once twice three times four times and 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 actually the the saint martin family who owned the place, uh, became like, like like friends more than once. We set up uh, as I was working for Reuters. We set up a real press room in the in the garden of Le, Le Viscos when uh, we had you know doping stories. At the time, you every, every once in a while you were you know uh, you were getting back to the to the the hotel and getting to dinner, thinking you know you, the, the day was over. But it was not you know so some but the, the police had raided the hotel. Some guys had been caught, had been, you know, at at failed dope test. and so it really became a habit. And have to, let's face it, after it, it, this was the first time we won, was now more than 20 years ago, and uh, and this place has really become. They are cycling fans, the the whole family, they they, they follow cycling a lot. The cyclists as well, not the uh, not not the father, of Jean Pierre, um, who doesn't really have the build for that. Um, but uh, but more of a sprinter <laughs> yeah, more, <laughs> more of the abdujaparov of cuisine you know <laughs> yeah but uh, Alexian and aurelien the, the the two one is the chef the other one takes care of the of the uh well administrative side of the of of, of the restaurant are both you know so gravel f- fans and actually aurelien is, is an avid gravel a uh, specialist, is a real sports guy. He was, he would, he used to do snowboard, surf in the, uh, uh, on the Atlantic, and and he, he, he turned to gravel, and he is in, is you know, is part of a club, uh, a gravel club in the Pyrenees crowd called well, Gravel Pyrenees. <laughs> I didn't even know, you know, I, I thought that you when you were in the mountains like that, you you would simply go up the the um, the climbs, the, the the famous passes, but uh, there, there's there's obviously um, a great gravel scene in the Pyrenees as well. I mean, um, obviously there might be lot there, there, there's, there's loads of uh, gravel tracks and path and places to 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 do that. And uh, but you're on top of being the great place to eat and uh, and dine and drink. Uh, well, you're in a uh, in a place where you know cycling is uh, is important as well.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, standing at the bottom of the Col d'Espagne this afternoon brought back memories of a of a ride i don't like to talk about my own cycling exploits too much but uh, listeners will uh, be familiar with edward pickering who was on the podcast last week and hopefully we'll we'll catch up with ed again this week Uh, but many years ago now i think it was 2009 ed and i rode from luchon to bayonne bayonne right over on the atlantic coast a distance of 324 kilometres. We traced the route of the original Pyrenean Tour de France mountain stage from 1910. That was the first time the tour really went into big mountains. They had had um, some climbs, I think, in uh, the Alsace region, and I think the mm. the Ballon d'Alsace maybe yeah, had the claim mm-hmm. as being the first. And the, uh, the Col de
2: Col Bayard as well, which is um, not uh, not major col, but was seen as, as uh, at, at the time in the Alps as a, you know a great climb. When, when actually these days it would be. You know probably Just second bump, category yeah, maybe exactly. maybe third
1: yeah. well the the ride from luchon to bayonne was 326 kilometers we did it over a couple of days um and yeah I, I really enjoyed the ride that i think that's probably where my kind of affinity for the pyrenean climbs comes from uh the perisord and the Aspam are both beautiful climbs to to ride they're not too hard uh the tourmalet of course is difficult the orbisk is difficult i do remember on the second day supposedly net downhill Um, because of course it's going down to the sea from the Pyrenees but it was 100 miles, our second day's ride and we did a climb called the Col d'Oscuic which is in the lovely kind of green part of the, um, you know, the the sort of the lead up to the Pyrenees and we kept it authentic, we stopped for lunch we had a, a, a rare steak and a cognac for lunch before riding on and then when we got to the finish we looked up our riding time bearing in mind we'd had a night's sleep in between our two stints And we were slower than Octave Lapiz, (laughs) who won the stage in 1910, riding for the Alcyon team. And now a little link there, because today, while we were having our lovely lunch in Foix, our black pudding lunch, uh, a man came over to us, uh, introduced himself as a friend of the podcast, um, said uh, that he enjoyed listening to the podcast, and he was wearing a retro Alcyon cycling jersey. He expressed his condolences uh, after the death of Richard Moore, Um, Of course and uh, he told us that he's been following the tour with his bike since Saint-Etienne He was wearing a Mitch Docker life in the peloton cap and he told us that in 2019. He was in Nîmes Reading Richard Moore's book slaying the badger which I mentioned on last night's podcast It was baking hot that day He was sitting somewhere in the shade and there was a a strange smell wafting under his uh, nostrils and he found a decomposing badger just by the roadside where he was sat. I mean, that, that's taking the, the definition of slaying the badger to perhaps an extreme, I don't know. But it was very nice to meet David Clark uh, this afternoon. And also, um, we didn't catch the name of the friends of the podcast who came over while we were having our dinner last night in Foix, where I um, perhaps rather ill-advisedly ordered the uh, Cote de Boeuf flambé, <laughs> which, was, which was brought to the table on a, on a griddle, already sliced, and then was set alight to give it a kind of charred um, finish.
2: Yeah, w- I would have been cremated uh, as <laughs> uh, uh, I sit in front of you. The wind
1: was, yeah, it was breezy, wasn't it? And the flames were significant, and <laughs> we were lucky to get away with our the uh, the hair on our arms still intact. Um, but uh, we had a nice meal in Foix last night, didn't we? Uh, let's just look ahead before we talk about the the, the rest of the the racing today, because um, tomorrow is kind of the the big. Pyrenean stage, but for the first time in a long while, no tourmalet on the menu this year, we've got the Col d'Orbisque the Col de Spandel and then the climb up to Otakam at the finish uh, which is of course where Bjarne Rees uh, did his big ring exploits back in 1996 I, I wonder whether that's where my impression of Otakam being a kind of a, a big bigger gear climb perhaps a little bit more reminiscent of the Alps and the Pyrenees because it is going up to a ski resort isn't it?
2: I think it's a bit of a Neil Fated. Climb, if you look at it, which which might be, you know, uh, how could I how could I put it, ominous for Jonas Vingegaard because well, let's face it, Bianchis won there, Juan Nuno Cobo no, uh, won there, and was later, you know, as we know, um, well, banned for doping. Bianchis was banned for doping as well. Luc Leblanc was uh, won here, but he was he was with Festina uh, a little bit before the scandal we we, we know about. Later with Javier Ochoa. Uh, one uh, at at uh, Otacam and uh, Lance Armstrong also banned for doping was uh, in the yellow jersey. As we know, the the Otra brothers uh, had one of the most uh, dreadful st- uh, stories in 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 cycling. Both, you know, the, you know, the tragic fates uh, with uh, you know dreadful accidents on the road uh, with cars. And uh, Javier was. Um, you know, uh, uh, as a result of his uh, injuries, were, were, uh, became actually a, a para, you know went to the Paralympics, won a medal there. I mean, so if you look at the destinies of the guys who won uh, Otakam, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's, it's
1: that there there is a kind of a black dark side dark. to it. This is Francois's dark corner again, isn't it? But you're <laughs> right, there is a there is yeah, it's um it's a it, well, let's hope that uh, obviously no, there's there's nothing sort of uh, you know continuing that theme tomorrow but it's a climb that uh, comes after two um, big climbs back to back and with so few riders to control um Yumba Visma and UAE team Emirates both have to you know think about how they are going to play it tomorrow and uh, perhaps in the final part we will discuss what they might do
0: Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in Sport, tuned by science.
1: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. Keep your nominations coming for the Pedaleur de Charme of the Tour de France. We've had quite a few emails in. Um, Magnus Court is a very popular nominee. Today, Pogacar, just because of the way he has carried on racing. He's been very magnanimous uh, when he has been, um, you know, second best to uh, Vingegaard. Who else have we got on the list here?
2: Well, Von w- would I think, uh, remember, he, he helps... Uh, you uh, he helped uh, uh you know a, a, a amateur rider or spectator fix his bike uh, coming down from the mountain. I mean, we, we know we will v- wins everything. So we, you know, Peter Elder may be a little bit too much. But I mean, that day it was uh, it was a great move and great jet, gesture from uh, quite Wout. a
1: few uh, mentions for Wout van Aert, Fred Wright as well for keeping going after um, getting in the brakes a couple of times. Who else? Tom Pidcock, keep the nominations coming contact at thecyclingpodcast.com or um, let us know on Twitter at cycling underscore podcast. Should also mention a book, Francois, that you translated for us, The Cyclist and His Shadow by Olivier Haralambon, a French author. Uh, It's a novel slash novella, really, isn't it? It's a short novel. And we, well, we asked you the question a couple of years ago on the tour during the lockdown tour what's the best cycling book you've ever read and you nominated this it was uh, Richard and us two we were sitting in Paris having our final lunch of the tour uh, goat's cheese salad I think we had at a, a brasserie somewhere uh, just off the um, Place de la Concorde wasn't it just around the corner and you mentioned this book uh, Le Coeur it's son ombre, I think it is Absolutely, in French, isn't yeah. it? And so we, well, we, we acquired the rights, and you translated it, Francois, and Richard wrote a, a foreword for it, and the book has been printed and will go on sale very, very soon. I think this week, in fact. Possibly talk about this in a bit more depth um, for an episode of Kilometre Zero, which uh, we'll, we'll get out maybe next week when the Tour de France fam is on. But uh, in a couple of sentences, what's the book about?
2: The book is about being a rider actually and it's for, for someone who like me has never been a professional or too much of a consistent rider the the way Olivier describes the the, 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 the feelings the, 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 the sensations you know, everything that goes with riding a bike and and becoming a, a, another kind of animal like you know as he says uh, when you're a, a rider and you you dip down in in, in your flesh, become a rider. When when you walk up steps, for instance, you feel like you're crippled because you don't have a bike. You know you don't have the the, the limbs that the 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 bike uh, you know provides. And so it's a very central book about. Uh, Wind, the wind, the feelings in your legs, the uh, I mean, and and but by just reading it, it, it it's like it's like actually riding a bike. It, it's, it's very precise in the evocation of, of the, the details, almost the sexual aspect of riding a bike, and um, and and to me, it was, it was no, it was really a revelation because very often. Uh, the, People, you know, that's a question we ask riders. What do you feel? What What are your feelings? You know, what are you experience are you experiencing when you're when you, you're deep in effort and and trying hard? And, and, and uh, Olivier Allemont goes very deep down into the, the, the very, yeah, the very the structure, essence, of, I think, the, the essence, essence of, being of being a bike a rider, rider, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Because it, when reading it, I found the kind of rhythm of my breathing changed. You know, there were passages that felt like you were, you know, turning over a big gear. And then there were passages where it felt like you were out of the saddle and on the, the balls of your feet, um, or, you know, or, or almost sprinting. Um, yeah it's a it's a very uh, you said sensual I, I feel like it's a book that opens up the senses certainly mm. and uh, well We'll, we'll talk about it in a bit more depth. Uh, you can go to com and just see a little bit more about The Cyclist and His Shadow by Olivier Haralambon, which uh, we are, well, we're very proud to publish, not least because it was kind of Richard's idea. It was his driving force. He asked you the question, Francois, because we'd made that Kilometre Zero episode about the rider by Tim Kraber, a great episode that, that Richard made for Kilometre Zero. And, and that is undoubtedly a great book about cycling, about the, the sort of the the oomph of racing really this is slightly different um it's a more evocative uh uh, tale really um and yeah richard kind of said well why don't we publish it if it's not being published in english why don't we and we paired with a an american publisher so um uh, listeners in the states will be able to buy it i think the american edition is already on sale so um yeah go to thecyclingpodcast.com and we'll put some more details about the book on there now let's just look ahead again uh, tomorrow, because Roman Bardet he recovered, you know, well from his bad day yesterday, where his chance of a sort of, well, it looked like his chance of a very high overall finish had been sunk, but he fought back today and was in the mix. And he gained time on, on other riders and he's jumped back up the GC again. So never say die from Roman Bardet.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's, 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 uh, he's riding a strange Tour de France with with ups and downs. He, he started the, the, the Tour by saying he was going for stage wins. But you don't go for stage wins when actually you find yourself pretty quickly in the top five, top six uh, of, of the GC. So... Obviously, his his, his, his hope is, is to be as close as possible to uh, to the top five uh, you know, GC. He was probably in a, in a best shape in the Giro, and, and which unfortunately he had to live through a sickness. We saw. We also saw today Thibaut Pinot trying again, you know, for for us. Thibaut Pinot fans in the podcast we know there are there, there's a little they have a little
1: they have a little group yeah they have a little group of them
2: <laughs> th- of their own called you know Pinot Watch uh, Pinot Watch was pretty des- you know depressing today at the, at the end of the stage he, 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 he went to the French TV and said I'm no good and that oh, I'm, I'm i i was very bad and he looked totally dejected because he he, he went for he it tro-
1: he was off the front with Lutsenko. he for was ages. but but
2: i mean you know he really had the impression he he, he, uh, he said you know I, I i you know i just couldn't do it i mean i i i'm not at the level i was expecting to be and and when he dropped back he, he said he hoped for a little while to um, be able to to help uh David Godu was uh, was you know at the back losing time and he said I I only managed to help him you know back on a, on a small bunch before uh, losing ground again i mean I, i'd never seen him so frank and so yeah r- really desperate saying so he's that that's the word he used he said je n- je ne suis pas bon i'm, I'm, I'm no good and it was uh, yeah well i mean it, Hang on a minute, <laughs> and maybe the the in in a more in a, in a more general uh, outlook, it's it's been a bad year, uh, relative, relatively for uh, French cycling because no French stage wins so, so far, not many uh, opportunities left. Uh, I, I really can't see a Frenchman winning. Tomorrow, I mean, they, it'll be fanciful to think somebody, could a Frenchman, ooh, I mean, we can't see, you know, what the, the Frenchman winning tomorrow in Uh, uh Next day is probably a, a sprint, uh, might be a, a, a sprint finish, and we have a couple of reasonably good sprinters like Hugo Hofstetter. but I mean, he's always been in the top eight, top nine, top ten, but n- n- not in a position to win a sprint. Let's face it, no, no, no Frenchman will win. Uh, the the, the final time trial and I can't see a Frenchman winning um, in Paris. So, there there is a fair chance that there won't be any French uh, stage win in this Tour de France and it's only happened twice before in 1926 and 1999 so it would be a real, real disastrous result for the French. Uh, obviously, Julien Laphilippe was not at the start. Arnaud Demar was not at the start either for other reasons because the uh, Groupama FDJ uh, uh, put their, their hopes on David Gaudu and a, a, a great GC result. Probably Guillaume Martin, I mean, he never won a stage in Tour de France, but he also was out with COVID. You can always find excuses, but decent GC showings by Bardet and even Valentin Madoise, who's been doing all right, and, and David Gaudu, but uh for a stage win i'm afraid we'll have to wait for next year
1: yeah i mean Godou is um i mean he's making a fairly good fist of being the rider who is riding a which is uh i should credit egg pickering for this because back when we worked for cycle sport magazine uh, i think he coined the phrase "the rider who just ghosts into the top 10 barely visible really not in the escapes um always at the back of the GC group, but very consistent, just quietly rides into the the top 10 without people really noticing. Uh, the problem for both Bardet and Godou is they're too well placed on overall classification to, to, to really do anything. Um, Madouas, the same doesn't really go for him so maybe Madouas and Pino have a chance tomorrow uh, we did see Tony Galapan up the road yesterday but um, uh, you know a shadow of the, the rider he was a few years ago uh, Pierre Latour has had a difficult time but has been in the escapes and as you say, um, there's not too many more candidates uh, unless maybe Jumbo visma reverse roles on the Champs-Élysées and get Wout van Aert to lead out Christophe Laporte
2: Ah, well, there would be something. I mean, and it would be. I mean, Christophe Laporte would, would in a way, deserve uh, that, that kind of result, but because he's, he's a changed man since he joined uh, we, we I mean, he, he was a good sprinter and a good finisher with Kofidis, but he's now really, you know, reached another level. And yeah, I mean, Visma already, uh, uh, you know, allowed him to win a stage on Paris, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Mm to let him win on uh, the Champs-Élysées at the expense of World van Arth I I don't know why I can't can't see it happening
1: (laughs) well no me neither I was just trying to be uh, trying to be kind I mean um, but well Francois we should probably wrap up because it's nearly dinner time I'm very excited about Le Viscos because you never quite know what you're going to get but you know that it will be good before we go there's time for the daily episode of the Tour de Buffalo Our homage to Richard Moore, of course, and this is from an episode of Kilometre Zero that Richard made after the death of Nico Portal, who was from Poe. We're not a million miles away from Poe, and Richard made this episode of Kilometre Zero after the Team Sky sports director, um, the man behind Chris Froome's Tour de France victories, of course, uh, died suddenly, and um, I suppose... I remember when Richard made this episode and there's a very moving passage with Fran Miller who works at the heart of the team and, and I've always thought when in cycling um, a, a rider's killed in a race or, or there's, there's some kind of tragedy the peloton, they have their day of mourning their day of respect and then the day after that everybody is back racing hell for leather again and I kind of have always struggled with that really how do people just go on? And I suppose this episode kind of, um, well, it enlightened me a little bit just with the way that Richard got people to speak with such openness and candor and emotion. And that was one of Richard's great skills, really, switching on the recorder and encouraging people just to say what they thought.
0: The Tour du Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore.
4: He was a very exuberant, uh, upbeat personality, very approachable as well. And we, over the years, would speak to him a lot at the Tour de France in particular. He was always certainly the the guy at Team Sky who you could count on, really, to give you a response, a reaction to what happened that day. He would pull up in the team car, you know, sort out his papers. And we'll hear later in the episode how he, he liked his maps as well as his technology and compose himself, sometimes dash off for a pee, but he would always come back and speak and give us a reaction in English and in French. And we'll we'll touch on his career as a sports director in this episode. We'll hear from some of the people who knew him very well. But he started off, of course, as a, a rider, and he was a surprise signing for Team Sky when they launched in 2010, one of two Frenchmen that they signed, you know, perhaps with an eye on favour with ASO they were an unproven team a new team so uh, Nicolas Portal was one of the riders who perhaps could help open doors for them in France and I guess they could never imagine just how effective he would be at doing that.
2: Yeah, it's really, it was actually kind of the the, the link, uh, <laughs> I was about to say the missing link, but yeah, that, that's about it
1: between uh, Team Sky and France. I suppose when you think about the dynamics of a sports team, you, what are the qualities that bring the best out in people? And, and it, it's almost a kind of uh, a desire to please and a desire to kind of get praise from um, the, the person in charge. And I could totally imagine any riders w- wanting to get a word of praise or encouragement from Portal or do something that you, that, that they know had made him happy. And uh, yeah, probably an invaluable um, part of his personality which translated to the way uh, the whole team operated.
4: Well, I mean, if he was a surprising signing as a rider for Team Sky, it was even more surprising when a year later he became a sports director. He was still only 30 or 31, still very, very young and younger than a lot of the riders on the team. It was young for him to stop racing. Um, and it was a very surprising appointment. It, it's interesting because I spoke to Matt White about this the other day. They were they were sort of peers, both young DSs who hadn't been at the very highest level. They weren't champion riders. They were good professionals. And, you know, there were a lot of claims made about Portal and his success. You know, is he the most successful sports director, director sportive in the of in even history of cycling comparisons with someone like Cyril Guimar? It's worth saying that the job has changed completely and Portal and Matt White are part of a new kind of sports director where the job is is much narrower and more specialised not less complicated because the technology and the tools that they have make it a really complicated job but their responsibilities are narrower than someone like Cyril Gaymar's The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnie.